This episode of the 614 Startups Podcast is brought to you by Ecove Capital. Are you a researcher or an inventor with a product or technology you want to commercialize and you're not quite sure how to get started? The team at Ecove can help you validate your idea, secure funding, and provide the support necessary to help your startup succeed. Check out Ecove Capital for more details. And Thompson Hine. Whether you just have an idea or a newly created startup or already working to scale, Thompson Hines' team of early and growth stage attorneys will provide you the support you need to get funded and succeed. Created to meet the needs and budgets of startups, Thompson Hines' quick launch has menu-based pricing and tons of great content. Visit thquicklaunch.com today. 614 Startups Nation, welcome to another episode of the 614 Startups Podcast. My name is Elio Harmon, your host, and I'm excited. I brought in a guest that's not going to disappoint. We brought out the big guns tonight. Uh-oh. My man, Jimmy Devine of Root Insurance. What's up, Jimmy? Hey, I'm happy to be here. All right. Is that all the energy you got for me tonight? Oh, man, I, I got to take a nap or something, you know? Okay, it is kind of late, man. We, we do <laughs> For most people who don't know, they just listen. We record at night. We got views of the city. It's beautifully set up in the studio. I'm super excited. But uh, at the top of every podcast, we start with a bit of the personal, right? Some folks may not know you out there. So who's Jimmy? Where are you from? And how did you come to live in Columbus, Ohio? Yeah, so uh, I'm basically a Columbus native. I was born in San Francisco, California, but uh, about a year afterwards, my parents moved me here to Columbus, Ohio. And I've been here ever since. I, uh, I grew up in Worthington, went elementary, middle, high school all to, to Worthington, then decided to go to Ohio State and stayed here, started a few companies, found Root, started working with them. So That's the short version of that story, right? I yeah. like it. And, and Worthington was my stomping grounds for a little while because I grew up in a very, very strict household. And my buddy's parents had a beautiful house out in Worthington, but I'm originally from Liberia, West Africa, and, and their parents had business in Liberia. So what they did, which was absolutely insane at the time, was both parents moved back to Liberia and left a house in Worthington, like a four or five bedroom house, to an 18-year-old and a 16-year-old to live in it. Wow. So yeah, I had my share of fun in Worthington <laughs> when I was 16, 17, and 18 years old. Yeah, I... Uh... I had my share of fun in Worthington, but uh, mostly playing on the drum line and, and you know, hanging out with all those, those people. We, we got real close, which was, which was nice. And uh, So Thomas Worthington, Kilbourne, yeah. where'd you go to school? Went to TWHS. Okay. Cardinals, baby. Got you. Yeah. All right. So you're a Cardinal. Yep. So was it natural for you to go to Ohio State? Was it always Ohio State or did you look at some other institutions? So, you know, I, I looked at some other places. I, I like to think I am a fiscally responsible individual. And so I, I looked at some places that were maybe a little pricier than Ohio State, but really they, they gave me a scholarship all in. It was 16 grand a year. And I thought I could do it in three years. And I actually, I got through it. So I, I you know, only cost my parents $36,000, which was nice and that they were really happy with. And something I was proud of myself too, that I could uh, start becoming a functioning member of society as soon as possible. That's awesome. Well, there's a, there's a whole shared experience that you don't have, which is student loan debt, right? But we could, we, yeah. we could talk yeah. about that whole population of people who went to school and incurred the debt. Now, engineering, because you're an engineer, you're probably, a lot of people are dual, right? Both business side and engineer. I think that I've uh, actually interviewed but I think you're a pure engineer, right? In terms of your role at Root. 
So at my role at Root, mm-hmm. I, am, I am basically a pure engineer. Now, these days I'm an engineering manager and I'm actually an engineering middle manager, but I don't do a lot of the businessy things that you might think. But actually my degree was partially in business. I got an entrepreneurship minor at Ohio State. It was free, actually. I dropped a bunch of my really hard tech electives to take a bunch of really easy business classes. And I was able to learn a lot about entrepreneurship. I had some great instructors there too. They, they were amazing. I, the founder of Max and Irma's, the founder of Skybus, like a bunch of people who were in, had incredible, incredible business experience and were able to, to share that with me and help give me a lot of that context, even though you know I'm not in the restaurant or airline business. All right. So the entrepreneurship bug kind of bit you. Mm-hmm. In terms of engineering, were you kind of a, a young tinkerer? Why'd you go into engineering in the first place? I think in high school, I took a, a Java class, sophomore year. And that class really opened my eyes to what programming or software engineering was really like. And I, I think I caught it then and I was like, oh my gosh, like, I think I could do this for a living. And took AP Computer Science and you know, were lucky enough to have those AP classes and I was just sold. I was like, okay, it's gotta be software engineering, computer science, you know, whatever you want to call it. And so uh, I was always the kid who was technical. You know, I played a bunch of games. I was the second grader who, you know, helped the teacher with the laptops when laptops in class were like the new fad. Uh, and so I already, I, I always knew I, I, I had that kind of vibe or that I liked that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it only really clicked in high school that I was going to write code for a living. Now, in the country, They're kind of these schools that are famous for producing computer science majors. And you see in terms of recruiting, right? And I feel this is just a strategy to keep talent off the market. Like, you know, these big name tech companies will just squat at certain schools and get all the tech talent, right? In terms of Ohio State's engineering program, what do you enjoy most about it? And what do you think was kind of the practical things that you learned that when you got out of school, you were ready to get into the business world as an engineer? Did they equip you to be able to come in day one or start learning or at least uh, be a productive member of any team that you joined? Yeah, so what Ohio State taught me were like problem-solving abilities, Um, really like core fundamentals of software engineering. I would say, though, that I learned a lot in the internships that I had, and they really helped facilitate those internships. And that's where I got a lot of my value in terms of learning what was going on in, in the, you know, the quote unquote real world. And so I would say they equipped me in some ways and in others they could have done better. And actually I, you know, I've been working with Ohio State to kind of help them come up with, you know, a better curriculum in terms of like really preparing people for what they should be doing in the, in the real world in software engineering. It actually sounds like they've really started doing that, which is pretty exciting. Like I'm a little biased because Ohio State is my alma mater, but you know, at Root, we've had a surprising number of incredible, like incredible hires from Ohio State. And so, you know, you talked a little bit about how these big tech companies kind of squat over these really, really incredible software engineering degree programs. Your MITs of the world, yeah. your Stanfords of the world. Really, I think people do not give Ohio State enough credit. They, they are producing incredible engineers and people who have just an innate love for the Midwest. And, you know, I think a lot of people understand the value of Columbus itself, you know, the cost of living, the type of people that are here. Like, I really, I believe in a lot of that. And I think a, a lot of that is incredibly just beneficial and interesting. And, and there are people who go to Ohio State who either want to be here or maybe they go experience Google or Amazon or whoever, Microsoft. And then they're like, oh, wait a sec. I like the Midwest. I want to be back here. And then they come back here and they find roots. And it's 
exactly what they want. Now, is the picture as rosy as it's painted for STEM graduates, right? So there's this other crisis going on. So it's not just student loans, but it's people graduating with degrees and they can't find work. Mm -hmm. So in terms of uh, how it's being sold to all of us, hey, the future is STEM. Did you find in your personal experience that when you graduated with this degree, the world was wide open to you? Job opportunities were there? Frankly, yes. Mm -hmm. Every, and, and I think it's even more so today. Software is only becoming more pervasive. And what I love to tell like new graduates or people who are interested is that whatever you like, it can be anything, you know, sports or video games or cars or again, anything, healthcare, anything you're passionate about, they all need software engineers. Everybody needs software engineers. And so you can do whatever you want as long as you enjoy software, as long as you enjoy writing code, as long as you enjoy being technical, you can really find businesses out there that are great to work for in any field at all. And so STEM, there are other types of engineering majors out there that I can't really talk about that well, but software engineering in particular, I think is actually one of the best professions for somebody to kind of pick themselves up by their bootstraps. It's really easy to, you don't even have to have a college degree. I have plenty of engineers who are better engineers than I am who don't have college degrees. And, you know, of course, maybe, you know, maybe they don't know some of the technical things that frankly aren't that necessary, but for the most part, they're, they're good. So I kind of glossed over this in your introduction because I get, like to get to know people on the podcast, but you work for a unicorn, right? Oh, yeah. The big orange unicorn, right? <laughs> that is Root Insurance. And for people who are not familiar with Root Insurance, if they've been living under a rock, what, what is Root Insurance? So the simple pitch here is Root is out there to unbreak insurance, and right now we're in car insurance and we're getting into renter's insurance. Really what we're trying to do is, is you know, make it a f more fair, equitable environment. And so car insurance uses a lot of factors to determine your price. A lot of them are demographic and frankly, not very fair when it, when it comes to, you know, how we decide to price you. What Root does is they use how you drive, which probably should be one of the only ways that we price car insurance. And that's really what's valuable about Root. The first thing is we, pr we price you based on how you drive. And the second is we're really easily available. We're available on an app primarily and also on the web, but really we are an app-based insurance company and we're a technology-based insurance company. And I would make the argument that there are very few other technology-focused insurance companies out there. All right, now when I think insurance, I think risk. Mm -hmm. And what better way to price risk than that the person's actual behavior, right? Now, for a yep. long time, uh, the software did not exist to actually track that behavior, right, in real time, like how you drove, mm -hmm. right? So when car insurance was developed initially, all they had to go off of was demographics information. They didn't have the chips in the cars. They couldn't track you. They didn't have GPS. They didn't have ways uh, or... Uh, uh, Google Maps, right? So there's, they had no choice but to go that, that route. When you guys start to build Root, right? I feel like large insurance companies, at least in the car insurance space, still don't get it. Or do you feel like they're catching on to the fact that this is a better way to price risk? So this kind of goes back to what I mentioned before. Root is a technology company first and an insurance company second. We happen to be in insurance because that's what our customers want. And that was kind of the, our original idea. But if our customers told us that they wanted something different from us, we would pivot and provide that to them. 
So with that point, I think there are a lot of insurance companies out there that are hundreds of years old and they're an insurance company first and a technology company second. And so they have a really hard time adapting to technology. And they're still learning how to do this, even though the technology boom happened quite a while ago. And so what's nice about kind of our foundational beliefs is that technology should be applied in whatever way we can do it. And what that means ultimately is faster iteration speeds, responding to changes in the market better, finding new ways to price people, hence, you know, how you drive, stuff like that. And so you'll see, you know, if you look at press releases in the insurance industry, you'll see that that these traditional insurance companies are trying to catch up, but you know, those things aren't necessarily working for them. For, they're not, it's not in their DNA. They're, they're right. trying to do something that doesn't, it's not natural for them, right? So they're right. maybe struggling a little bit. Yeah. And so either they have to have a really big shift in how they think about insurance and, and how they execute in their company or get But that's really hard to do when you're making money, right? Isn't that one of the big, isn't that one of the problems why startups are so necessary? It's because once you get to a certain scale, changing what you do becomes very, very difficult because everybody is invested in the old model. Mm-hmm. You just hope it's a fad. Yeah, you underestimate the impact of a startup and how it might disrupt your industry. Now, you didn't know, unless you have a crystal ball, that Root is going to be or was going to be Root Insurance. So mm-hmm. you were starting with a pure startup play. How, when, you, when you came on board to Root, how many employees were you guys at, at that time? Yeah, I mean, me and my buddy were a package deal uh, to just two software engineers and it was the two founders. You know, it was so we were, you know, basically employee number three and four. Effectively, yeah, yeah. Were you guys officially like employees? I mean, uh, had they raised any money, or were you guys uh, working pro bono? Uh, no, so so I would never work pro bono. No, okay, I'm all right, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I wouldn't. Uh, when uh, that that back then, like, I needed the money. You know, mm-hmm. I was more or less fresh out of college, and I just didn't have the abilities to work work like that. And so, root is a little different. So I think with a lot of the startup stories that you know you tell here. Most people bootstrap their own business. They put in all this work to prove that it's a valid idea. Then they get some angel funding. Then they get some seed funding. Then some Series A if everything goes right. Root is different. Took a very different path. Basically, our our seed round came from Drive Capital. Drive Capital helped assemble that team and basically said, hey, come to us with a pitch and the founders came to him with the pitch and said, this is what it's going to be. And then Drive Capital said, here's 5 million bucks. You know what? That message from Mark Kwame that I haven't played yet on my phone, I'm going to go play that and see if I get the same <laughs> message that they got. Okay. Because that's a hell of a, like, I don't know, coincidence or, I mean, do you have the original story of why they wanted to get into this space? Was it was it something that Drive wanted to do and they were looking for a team to do it? Or yeah. how did that come yeah. about? My understanding, and, and I don't have the intimate details, but I have, I have the rough ones, you know, they were looking for an insurance play and, you know, elected to try to assemble this team to see, you know, what could, what could come together, what they could figure out. Now, they had no idea, or at least I don't think they had any idea about you know, whether, okay, you know, based on a mobile app or based on telematics, which is the, you know, fancy way to say pricing on how you drive. You know, I'm pretty sure they came up with that and they figured that out and put that pitch together and really sold drive on that telematics. Nice. So note to founders, ask an investor what they might be interested in investing in rather than (laughs) always trying to pitch them your idea, right? So it's it's kind of a reverse way Mm -hmm. of looking at this, right? So all the time, I know at least until you told that story and I experienced what it's like for someone who goes the other route, 
you always feel like you need to be pitching the investor on what you want to do. Mm-hmm. Nobody takes the time to ask the investor, well, what are you interested in investing in? And whether or not you might be the startup founder or they might be in search of a founder who mm-hmm. can actually build it. Yeah. And I, like I said, like it's, I think it's a very rare occurrence. You know, I'd never heard of something get, getting started like that. You know, it's almost always bootstraps, but I think the opportunity is there, especially if there's, you know, if that investor is looking for a very specific thing and you have that expertise. Wow. All right. Did you start working on version one and was it, are you guys just iterating on the original version or were you building something completely different and pivoted to what Root is now? So the idea of Root actually started, uh, and, and I'll get into a little bit of insurance details here, but originally started kind of like as an agency. Like we didn't want to be actually having the risk on our own books, which you know effectively means that you're insuring these people and you pay them out. What we wanted to do was like work with another insurance company and say, oh, hey, whatever, insurance company you know, nationwide, we want to do this project. We want to price people based on how they drive. Can you, can you supply us your backing, your financial backing? And what we'll do is we'll give you profitable customers and you'll pay us a fee for that. And you'll actually, if you look out in the insure tech space, there are a lot of insurance companies or agencies that do this. It's way less risky. There's a lot less regulatory involvement. And I think it's easier, but you have less control. And so what we actually found was that we went out to an insurance company and we said, hey, can you give us an ability to quote? And they said, come back in, come back in six months and we'll have that. We're like, oh, it's okay. It's a little long, but okay, sure. And then about a few weeks later, we go back to them and we say, oh, uh, we've, kind of, we've kind of evolved our product. We actually want to be able to buy on the phone too. And they came back to us and they said, well, we have a better idea. What if people called in to give their credit card information and buy on the phone because we don't have the ability to handle credit card numbers over the internet. Mm-hmm. And I think at that time is when we kind of saw the lights. We were like, okay, we can't be an agency. We need to become an insurance company, a true insurance company. And so that's really when we, we kind of shifted gears. It was, it was the same idea for the most part. Of course, it went through some iterations on like, okay, what kind of information do we ask for? How exactly do we want to suggest how good of drivers these are? You know, how do we, how do we efficiently monitor driving? Things like that. But they were all small implementation details in the big goal of selling insurance policy based on how you drive. And so... Really, the, I think the biggest decision that, that ever got made was, hey, let's become a real insurance company. And it was absolutely the right decision. Now, what does it take to be a successful engineer inside of a startup? I mean, you're employee three and four, day one. What are the skills you think that are required so, in order to be successful? So I think you'll hear this from a lot of startup founders, flexibility. That is the biggest thing, is being able to fix problems as they come up, even if they're not in your sphere. I was the de facto IT guy for like two years. (laughs) Let me tell you, I hated that job, but it was necessary. And as somebody who is technical and who is more or less willing to do that, it had to be done, right? Like what happens when somebody's computer starts freaking out and they don't know how to fix it? Well, we're not just going to let them sit there and try to figure it out themselves, especially if they're a non-technical individual, you know? Somebody needs to fix it. Okay, I guess I'm stopping what I'm writing to fix it. And so I think flexibility is is the number one thing, followed closely by problem-solving ability. We don't hire for, oh, do you know Ruby on Rails? Oh, do you know JavaScript? Like, oh, do you know X or Y or Z? It Really what we do is we're asking questions to get down to the person's problem-solving ability. 
And if you can ha- if you can work through any problem, regardless if it's technical or operational or um, you know financial or product, you know, like you're going to do pretty well in the startup sphere. If you can just take those problems, break them down into small pieces and solve them incrementally, that's what you really need. Right. Now, there there are two kind of ways of looking at problem solving. There are people who are super smart that can solve problems quickly, but then there are wickedly difficult problems to solve. And people who are traditionally used to solving problems quickly don't thrive well when you have a problem that actually poses a challenge where persistence is necessary. So for an evolving company solving, let's say, a problem that you feel you have a very, very good handle on, which is car insurance, Mm -hmm. and then you now have, you know, a group of people who are used to being successful and kicking butt at car insurance, and there's a pivot to renter's insurance, you're no longer kind of um, in the day-to-day role of an engineer. You're now managing people. Mm -hmm. How are you managing people who are used to being successful all the time, running into problems that now require persistence to solve? How do you approach that from a management standpoint? So for me, it's actually, it's fairly easy. It's all about expectation setting. If somebody expects to come across a problem that they're not familiar with, they're just going to solve it. They're just going to, oh, I heard this was going to happen. I'm just going to do it. And, and maybe that seems kind of like a cop-out answer, but really one of the most powerful tools I have a manager as a manager is setting expectations. If I can sit down with somebody and say, and so, right, Root is fast moving. One of my favorite lines is, uh, I will not be your manager in three months. You will not be on the same team in three months. You will not be working on the same thing in three months. Frankly, that's not necessarily true. It could happen. I could move somebody very soon, but if I prepare them for that and then I come to them in three months and I say, oh, hey, you're you know, you've got this skill set that I need somewhere else. I'm going to move you, I'm going to move you onto a different team. They're going to be like, oh, wow, Jimmy told me about this and this would happen before. And so I'm prepared for it. And so it's, it's really, to me, it's as easy as setting expectations. Now, of course, there are a bunch of other things in there, like, uh, you know, this person could not be good at this particular problem, stuff like that. Like that's all things that a manager should be able to suss out and, and, and determine. But for the most part, if you prepare people for things, especially people who are good problem solvers, They'll do it. They'll do anything. They'll be ready for anything and they'll, and they'll want to tackle those kind of problems. All right. Now let's talk about maybe a little bit of cannibalism that happens in a small startup ecosystem for certain types of talent, mm-hmm. right? Ohio State is producing their fair share. Uh, you know, maybe Franklin, maybe some other Ohio Dominican, maybe we're pulling from some other uh, sister cities around the, around the state because we have a, a, a great city to live in. Mm-hmm. You as an engineer how do you manage your team in such a way that the tendency for maybe another company, we won't throw out any names, to be able to come in and poach one of your employees, right? Because the competition is there. We're a growing city. There are startups growing all the time. Maybe somebody on your team wants to go somewhere and be an early employee. How do you manage that in a climate where the the demand for that talent, particularly people who have worked in a root insurance, mm-hmm they have that on their resume, people want to recruit them. How are you looking at that as a manager? So first things first is you have to treat people right. I, it, you could be paying somebody all the money in the world, and if you don't treat them right, they're going to leave. And that is the thing that I've found as a manager, probably the most important thing. Treat people with respect, with empathy, you know, understand their problems. Everybody has problems. Everything, everybody's good at things. Everybody's bad at things. And I'm gonna wrap, I'll wrap this back again to setting expectations. You know, if you sit down with somebody and you say, hey, look, today you're a software engineer level one. 
I want to bring you to, to senior software engineer, and I'm going to do that as best that I can. What, what I need from you is to expect to get very honest, very raw feedback. And it's going to be constructive, but sometimes it's going to hurt. But know that I'm doing this because I want to turn you into the best engineer that I can in the shortest amount of time possible. And so that's the, that's the first thing, right, is very clear goals for people and, and managers being very open. You should never come to an, oh gosh, you should never come to an annual review and be surprised. Oh, that that's te- like, why aren't you hearing from your manager sooner than that? And that's a promise that we make as managers at Root to our individual contributors is you're always going to know how I feel about you and the work you're doing and where you're going. And that connection, I think, is incredibly, incredibly powerful. So that's just the baseline, right, is respect, is reasonableness. But also, I think something that a lot of startups tend to do is they tend to underpay their talent and give them equity instead. Um, and and I think that 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 is, that is doing a disservice. You're only finding a very small niche of people who are probably at pretty young who can kind of see that, that, oh, oh, maybe this company will grow into something. And maybe that's, in my case, maybe that was naivety or excitement or whatever, but paying people better than market rate is actually pretty effective. And frankly, the types of people that you get, you know, you're going to get an engineer who performs one and a half times as better as maybe this average level engineer, and you're going to pay them not one and a half times more. You're still going to pay them better than market rates, but if people are being compensated well and fairly, they're going to stick around. And that's and continuing to evaluate those and that engineer's ability and saying, not even once a year, but looking at this person and say, wow, you've grown a lot over the past six months. You've earned a higher salary. It's it, we're not trying to irk value out of our salary numbers. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that is not that is not how it works at root. Like if someone deserves and, and has earned a higher salary, they should get it right now. There's no need to wait. And there's no need to like drag it out or try to do like this weird min-maxing with like, oh, you know, how much do I think Jimmy will take uh, versus how much I can actually, you know, or actually I should actually compensate him. Right, or what's in the budget to pay him. Right. Mm-hmm. Though you should be hiring the most talented people you can find and paying them what they expect. Mm-hmm. Now that means you're going to have far fewer engineers, but the quality, something I'm so proud of at Root is the quality of engineer that we have. Everybody, everybody just knows how to do their jobs. And I know a lot of, you know, a lot of people who have experience in corporate America find that 90% of people do 10% of the work and 10% of the people do 90% of the work. And for people who are highly motivated, that's exceptionally frustrating. And really at root, I think we've cornered the market on engineers who are exceptionally skilled yet underappreciated. And we do a, we do a great job of that, not just hiring in Columbus, but from, from, you know, all over the Midwest and we're starting to get a pretty good reputation all over the country. You know, we're hiring people from San Francisco, from New York, and they are great engineers and they both see the allure of the Midwest and understand the value of Root. Even if they were making two times what, what they were making or what they would make here in Columbus, they actually understand that that's more or less a raise because of how expensive it is to live yep. in San Francisco and and New York. All right, I got two more questions. These are questions designed to make sure you're on your toes, all right? So here comes the first curveball. Diversity and inclusion. Topic du jour. The makeup of teams and the makeup of the people that you serve. You're in the car insurance business. The issues with demographics probably affect certain demographics more than others. Mm -hmm. 
right? You, you have the historical problems of certain people not being able to get loans if you live in a certain zip code or not being able to get a fair price for something because you're deemed more risky because of your demographics, mm-hmm. right? And so when you're building a product to deal with a lot of the legacy of policies like that where demographics were used against people not to serve people, mm-hmm. and then you look at the makeup of your team, how are you making sure as a manager that you're bringing on voices that can say, hey, man, the way Root is starting to look at this thing is going to have effects based on maybe that person either lived experience mm-hmm. or just where they come from and they, and they understand what some of the challenges are? Yeah. So early on in the company, you know, something that we, w- we would sit around, you know, a table, we'd work really late and then go to the, uh, uh, the Pearl uh, and you know, sit around a table and, and you know, Alex, our, our CEO, Dan, our CTO, you know, me, a few of the other like original people at Root. And we would talk about what do we want this company to be? What happens if we get successful? You know, every person in a, in a, in a young startup talks and thinks about that, right? What do we do if we're successful? What does this look like? And one of the most important things that we focused on was the culture. We know, like there are, there are countless studies out there that's, that say the more diversity, you know, the closer you are to 50% men, 50% women, the, you know, the more different types of representation you have, you know, whether that be experiential, you know, um, through, you know, different races, different cultures, makes the company better. Like it's actually, it's actually bad if you don't build a diverse company strictly from an economics standpoint, let alone anything else. And from a culture perspective too, like the last thing we need Root to be is an echo chamber. You know, the thing we want and, and that Alex preaches constantly is, is dissent. When you see something happening in the company that you disagree with, as, as, and, this, and you don't have to be a manager or a, or a VP or a director, like if you, a frontline individual contributor. You're taking claims, phone calls. Yeah. If you see a problem with this company, you need to dissent. It's not just a suggestion. It is your obligation to dissent and send that up the company and send that up the chain. That's incredibly important for, you know, you know, the last thing, you know, I think there are some startups out there that have been, uh, they have maybe like a bro culture that, that is, you know, very, you know, white frat boy or something like that. There, There are companies out there that just beat their employees to death in terms of work-life balance. That's not roots. You know, we, that inclusion is incredibly important and making sure that, that everybody from different walks of life join our company and are encouraged. Those kind of people are encouraged to join our company. That's super, super important to everybody from the sea levels all the way down. All right. Now, second curveball question. I'm a futurist, okay? In Elio Harmon's future scenario, I'm going to paint for you. We live in a zero risk world. So for the car insurance company, it would be self-driving cars that have figured out how to make risk mitigating decisions, meaning cars don't run into each other anymore, right? Mm -hmm. So even from a renter's insurance perspective, there are sensors everywhere. Somebody breaking, breaking your house, they can never get out of the house, right? (laughs) So it would just lock them down. So nobody steals anymore. Okay. Um, Let's say- No more fire either. Yeah, no. Fire has been banished. Fire (laughs) extinguishers in every single apartment because everything has a sensor. The sensors will sense that a fire is imminent through AI and machine learning from the million fires that it can analyze. Mm -hmm. And it would risk mitigate. It would say that plug is going to catch fire with a probability of 99% in the next five minutes unless somebody does something, right? So this is the evolving world of sensors where everything is trying to get risk mitigated. Mm -hmm. As an insurance company, as an engineer, 
I would be thinking about it, right? Yeah. A world where car insurance really maybe doesn't have risk involved with it. What are you guys thinking about at root in this risk-free world if we get there? So if we get to the risk-free world and we're unnecessary, such, mm-hmm. as, such as life, that, <laughs> that if our customers don't need us, either we're going to try to pivot, which we always do, or again, we're just, we're not necessary. If insurance isn't necessary and that's where our subject matter expertise lies, then okay, that's the company. But to get to that point, you're going to need insurance companies that know how to pivot quickly, right? It is going to take some time, even if, you know, let's say this world without risk is 10 years in the future, maybe maybe some more realistic, maybe 100 years in the future. As we get closer and closer to zero risk, your premiums should go down, not up, mm-hmm. right? The less damage that's being caused, you know, we, hurricanes don't happen anymore, right? Your premiums should go down. You should pay less for insurance. And if there's an insurance company out there that can measure that faster and better, which I think Root is, we could do that. Like, mm-hmm. And we'll be able to price you most accurately. And what most accurately reads to a consumer is the cheapest, the most affordable, the most reasonable, and the best coverage. And that's, that's really what we aspire to do. You know, people talk about self-driving cars all the time. Oh my gosh, I would love it if self-driving cars happened tomorrow. Because we will be in the, our phone, you know, the phones will be in the pockets of these, of these people in these self-driving cars. We will have more data than any other insurance company and we'll be able to accurately assess the risk of those cars. Mm-hmm. Even if the accident rate is, you know, one in a billion trips or whatever, you know, we'll be able to accurately assess that and then we'll be able to know which algorithms are better. Oh, is Tesla's algorithm better? Is Toyota's algorithm better? Okay, who do we price better? And then ultimately what you do, and what kind of one of the great things about Root is that you can drive people's decision-making with economics, right? You can, if you charge the more unsafe, the people who have the more unsafe cars more, they're gonna bias towards the safer cars, which are cheaper to insure. And that's one of the best things that we as a company can do is help bias people's decision-making with monetary forces, effectively the money that they pay. All right. So final tough question. Thank you. You've been a great sport tonight. We had some technical difficulties at the start of the night. You've been super patient. This is the final question. Now you have to answer it with the first thing that comes to mind. No politically correct answers here. All right. This is all data driven. Uh-oh. According to the data that Root has collected, who are the better drivers, men or women? Uh, women, I believe. Oh, that's the safe answer. No, I... I'm, oh, is that what the data says? That's what, well, so it actually, uh, my understanding, I'm no actuary, but the, the data actually fluctuates based on your age. And so... I'm trying, it's not a gender thing. It, I mean, it, it, there, there is correlation that I think women are generally safer drivers. All right. But there, there is... Because my wife and I have this conversation <laughs> all the time. So, okay, she wins again. My wife wins the argument again. According to the data at Root Insurance. Oh, the actuaries would tell you that it also it also depends on your age. Okay. And, you know, that all that other cl- those cl- other clever things. All right. So there's not a there's not a clear <laughs> answer. Okay, but the safe answer is to say the women, you know, according to the data, most of the time are better drivers. All right, Jimmy, thank you so much for taking the time. Yeah. I really appreciate this. Very, very insightful. Enjoyed the conversation. And I end every podcast with my one takeaway. And I think it's something as human beings we understand is important, but we tend to forget, which is empathy. We're all people. We all have problems. We all have issues. Whether you're building a two-person company or 500 or more employees, whether you're serving one small area or you're trying to serve the world, empathy matters. Look people in their eyes, tell them the truth, and treat them fairly. Thank you for joining us on another episode of the 614 Startups Podcast. Peace. Peace. 
614 Startups Nation. It's a wrap. Thank you for listening. You can listen to this podcast on our website, www.614startups.com, and on all your favorite podcast channels like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor, and Google Podcasts. Make sure you like, subscribe, and comment. Also, 614startups.com is your one-stop shop for Columbus startup news, interviews, and events. Make sure you make 614startups.com part of your daily routine to stay up to date.